I'm also going to act on my own. I've got a pen to take executive actions where Congress won't. The Democrats are not trying to discover facts. They're trying to invent a narrative. President Trump tried to cheat. He got caught. The facts that they need do not exist, then they'll just make it up. Their objection is that someone blew the whistle, and they would like this whistleblower identified. Read my lips. When there's a bill that ends up on my desk as president, you, the public, will have five days to look online and find out what's in it before I sign it. Donald Trump doesn't give a expletive about Ukraine. There are no votes in the House, a majority of votes, for a wall. No matter where you exactly start. right. Nancy, we need border security. It's very simple. Of course we do. We need border security. People are pouring into our country, including terrorists. No, no. He cares about big things that affect his personal interests. American security has to be first. That will be the foundation of every single decision that I will make. Lord, help them to remember that they can't ignore you. Uh, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And get away with it. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. For we always reap what we sow. The first three words of the Constitution are we the people, not honest old age, not return to normalcy, not prosperity and progress, not yes we can. Those campaign slogans are broken promises. Our nation was founded by the people, for the people, because America is about we the people. Let these questions sink in. Ask yourself, will we the people throw out our Constitution? Will we the people allow unnamed bureaucrats to make our laws? Will we the people be ruled by a one-world dictator? We're talking about America, the greatest nation in history. And yet today, we the people are on the verge of letting our God-given sovereignty be stripped away. Donald Trump, the 45th President of the United States, the most polarizing figure to ever hold the office of the presidency. Scripture tells us that the authorities that exist are appointed by God. But what are God's intentions? And what will the world look like in 2024 after a second term of President Trump? Donald Trump, love him or hate him? Donald Trump's one of the worst things to happen to this country. When he was elected, I cried. I think he's a racist. He's real. I think he's a crazy bugger. He's a businessman, he's not a politician. You have to be a businessman for you to be a president. He needs a haircut. His policies that he's trying to push forward is great for the country. Securing the water, 100,000 people a week coming over. I love him. This is ridiculous. I don't think he's a typical politician at all. He's a danger for the world. We need to be I love America, and I think that he does too. And that's who we want in the White House. Somebody loves America. The 
It's difficult to deny that the world has been heading toward a global government. Look at the United Nations, NATO, World Bank, IMF, World Health Organization, treaties such as the Paris Climate Agreement, Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the Global Compact for Migration. For some, this is the dream of globalization. For others, losing our sovereignty is the worst thing for the United States. The COVID pandemic helped us realize that we have become too dependent on other countries for our medical supplies and drugs. Globalism, what is at stake for we the people? This great republic of ours was built on the notion of individual liberty, individual freedom, and that means individual responsibility. If we yield over and decide that America is not unique, it's not special, it's not extraordinary, there's nothing all that different about it than all the other nations. Well, at that point, we've already capitulated to nothingness. We no longer are the United States of America. We're just a piece of a bigger government. President George H.W. Bush. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, days later, Mikhail Gorbachev, Pope John II, and President Bush met and announced the term New World Order. The New World Order is another term for globalism, which is the dream of globalists to have a one world government. It is a movement to bring a globalist approach to law, to economy, to governments, to control the entire planet with one centralized government. Whether Republican or Democrat, there are those for decades who have been working toward a globalized governing body, a one-world complex where there are no borders and no sovereignty. The country was founded to be a republic, not a democracy. The left, in the words of Barack Obama, want to fundamentally transform the United States of America. I don't. I want to improve the United States of America, but I don't want to fundamentally transform it because I love it. You can't love something you want to fundamentally transform. The best way to describe the concept of one world order is that it is a movement to try to bring a globalist approach to the economy, to law, to governance, essentially to control the entire planet. Nationalism believes that countries have the right to their own sovereignty. That means that each country has the right to protect their own borders, the right to teach their own history, the right to uphold their own traditions, and the right to worship through their own belief system. Globalism, on the other hand, says no. Globalism is run by a small group of elites who have the power, literally, to control everyone and everything. They started off with the League of Nations, and that failed. Then we went to World War II. World War II ended in 1945. The United Nations was born in 1945. And it was their effort at a world government in our world today. Theory is that if we would go into global governance, we would put all the armies under one authority, the United Nations. And since you have one army, it wouldn't fight with itself. Globalism is this utopia, this Pollyannish worldview of one world. That may very well, according to your eschatology or dispensationalism, it may very well take place one day. If the left prevails, then America is fundamentally transformed and is no longer America. And with millions that they want to bring in, bring in uh, big government values, for example, 
we will not be the United States of America as it has been. The challenges, of course, of globalism for a country is maintaining your own identity in the midst of this global economy. A globalist government is not a good thing. A globalist government be the worst thing that can happen simply because globalists rule from one particular area and they're ruling everybody. Like the European Union has 27 different countries in it, but one group rules them all from Brussels, Belgium, these unnamed bureaucrats. No one knows who they are, where they came from, or uh, what they're doing. They're not elected and they're unknown. They don't answer to anybody. You know what that country you live in? Well, we don't care about that country anymore. The EU is going to govern you. Greece, where I go every summer, my relatives have suffered under this. They have lost their sovereignty effectively. Alger Hiss, the architect of the UN Charter, was later convicted of lying to cover his activities as a communist spy. The United Nations was created to be a socialistic one world governing body. But today, everyone says it's this great humanitarian organization that is just here to help the people and feed the people after a tsunami and things like that. That's not what it was created to be. One thing we know that the final seven years of Earth's history are going to be marked by a one world government presided over a figure the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. The only thing we would say about a global uh, government is that it's a setup in many ways for the final hours of human history, the rise of the Antichrist. What happens if an Adolf Hitler would get control of the only army that's left? then you've got the worst tyranny the world has ever seen. Now many people say that would not happen, but the truth of the matter is the Bible prophesies that is exactly what is going to happen. Only someone worse than Hitler, a person who's called the beast or the antichrist will get control of this one world governmental system in the not too distant future. That's how I look at NATO. If you hear it in the news, you think North Atlantic Treaty Organization, hey, that sounds pretty cool, but it's not cool at all. In Revelation chapter 13, 2, when the Bible talks about a world governing body, the Bible says the dragon gave it its seat, its power, and its great authority. So this world governing body that's being created, the main driver behind that is Satan himself. There clearly is a march toward globalization. We know that there is a counter force to everything that God does. It's called Satan. He's been planning and scheming from the very beginning, and we read that he does it all the way to the end. Revelation chapter 13, it talks about a final leader. He's called the first beast. He has a cohort known as the false prophet, and basically they are running the world. That Antichrist is going to be the ultimate globalist. He will gain control of the world for a season, and God allows him to do it. And when he does, it will be literally hell on earth. That dark hour is surely around the corner. When the 2016 presidential campaign began, I was trying to figure out who I should vote for. And I see 17 Republican candidates all the way across the stage. I didn't know anything about Donald Trump. Well, all of a sudden, Trump begins to speak against globalism. My ears perked up and I thought, does he know what he's saying? And then he started speaking against the establishment. Our movement is about replacing a failed and corrupt when I say corrupt, I'm talking about totally corrupt political establishment with a new government controlled by you, the American people. 
I realized he was the only politician that understood that America was being sucked into a one world government system and we had to be pulled out of it. Well, when he started talking about that, man, our ears pricked up. We thought, oh my goodness, could he be the one? We didn't know if he'd be strong enough, but I didn't realize that he could stand in the face of the international community almost on his own and say, we will not yield to this. I will not yield up the sovereignty of the American people to this world governing system. There is nothing the political establishment will not do, no lie that they won't tell, to hold their prestige and power at your expense. And that's what's been happening. President Trump has pulled America out of things like the Paris Climate Accord, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, all because those are too entangling. Those were designed to suck us into the planned new world order or one world government. You have to understand the sustainable development goals. The sustainable development goals, which were signed onto by 193 member nations of the United Nations in September of 2015, is the United Nations blueprint for global governance in the world by 2030. But President Trump understands this. He's against globalism. He's against the loss of American sovereignty. Global cooperation, dealing with other countries, getting along with other countries is good. It's very important. But there is no such thing as a global anthem, a global currency, or a global flag. This is the United States of America that I'm representing. The global migration compact, Donald Trump pulled us out of that. Again, that was the United Nations effort to actually be able to globally govern migration, the movement of people to equally distribute them throughout the planet. Well, Donald Trump saw that and he said, it's not gonna happen. This is America first. I'm not gonna let a United Nations dictate who we let in and out of this nation. So he simply pulled us out of that. In my first week, I withdrew the United States from the job-killing catastrophe that we know what that is, TPP and the Paris Environmental Accord. Not too good. Not too good. Well, the election of Donald Trump caused a gigantic pause button to be pressed on the agenda of globalism. The U.S. should never cede its sovereignty to some foreign national entity, and especially to some globalist governing body. And the president totally understands that, and he put America first, rather than putting some nebulous global entity above America. Now, if Donald Trump would have had a hat that said, make the world great again, the world would have fallen over in love with him. Donald Trump says, I'm a nationalist, it's gonna be America first, and I hope everyone in America really realizes what he's doing. We had leaders in this country that were selling us down the river. They had yielded up so much of our sovereignty, people didn't realize it. And before it was over with, we were gonna be enmeshed in this world governing body. Socialism 
is a system of government where government controls the economy. It doesn't work. Socialism is based on the fallacy that as human beings, we're better off with someone else controlling not only what we do and what we produce, but what we receive from it. If you take from one group of people who are actually making money and overtax them in order to give it to people who will not or do not work by their own choice, then you lower the incentive by great measure of the people who are actually working. Socialism is thievery. Socialism is taking from someone who has earned it to give their money to someone who has not. Margaret Thatcher is famous for saying the problem with socialism is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. Socialism is all about control, control, control. It's not about free college and free health care for everybody and this, that, and the other. They like to throw the term free out there. But in the end, socialism is all about control. It's unfortunate that our state schools today are controlled by socialists. And these are people that want to take us backwards. Socialism only works when the government who is running socialism is willing to kill several million people to keep everybody in the system but it never works organically. The Democratic Party has turned into basically a socialistic party. If you look at their principles and everything they're trying to push, their platform has become socialistic. We actually have Democratic Socialists who are trying to run for president. No matter what label they use, a vote for any Democrat in 2020 is a vote for the rise of radical socialism and the destruction of the American dream. Democrats are collectivists, they're socialists, so therefore they have to keep people in a plantation mentality that if we all just kind of stay together, you're going to have overseers and rulers to make all decisions for your lives. They want to make every decision over health care, every decision over education, every decision over housing, every decision over where you're able to work or where you're able to work for. This is not freedom. This is not freedom at all. Venezuela is muy malo and in crisis. Venezuela's symptoms include high inflation, violent crime, electricity rationing. People discuss often in addressing the question of socialism is to look at Venezuela, to look at Cuba. Venezuela was the most prosperous country, not just in South America. Venezuela was the most prosperous country per capita in the world until they went socialist. And from that they collapsed and now people are starving and it's a disaster. I saw a picture the other day of their money laying in the street up against the curbs, piles of their dollars. It's totally valueless. Why anybody could even successfully go into our government like they are now and suggesting socialism and being taken seriously. Venezuela, one of the first things they did is they took all the guns away from people. And this has happened again and again and again. In Russia, uh, I was meeting with the number two man in the Orthodox Church. I said, under communism, what was the relationship with the church? He said, there was no relationship. He said, they persecuted us. I said, what happened to the, to the priest? 
he said, and he leaned forward, he said, they killed all of them, all of them. I said, they killed all of them, all of them. So people who advocate socialism here, for the most part, not all, but mostly, are very young people who have zero frame of reference when it comes to historical socialism. 50% of Generation Z think socialism is not a bad idea. Absolute ignorance of history and nonsense. It was once said about the Soviet Union, the government pretends to pay people and the people pretend to be working. We can look into any and every dispensive code in this country. We can look at Camden. We can look at Compton. We can look at wherever government controls absolutely every area of people's lives, from their health care to their education to their housing to their economic advancement. This is government. This is the welfare state. We already have it, and we don't want it. 78% of black husbands were in their homes married to the mother of their children when they started the social engineering of the welfare state. Fast forward 50 years, 78% of black children are being raised in single-headed households. This is destruction personified. Think about it, prophetically speaking, if we implement socialism in this country, the Bible tells us that the end-time world government, the United Nations and the Antichrist, their entire government will be socialistic. So why would we want the United States to go in that direction? We wouldn't even be discussing contemplating implementing socialism in this country. If that continues and we see socialism achieving its goals in America, then America will no longer be great. As we were flying over Iowa one Saturday afternoon, I said, Mr. Trump, I believe you're going to be the next president of the United States. He said, do you really believe that, Robert? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, well, then let me ask you a question. Do you believe it was God's will for Barack Obama to be president? We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You will see a time in which we as a nation finally recognize relationships between two men or two women as just as real and admirable as relationships between a man and a woman. I said, yes, sir, I do. I believe it was God's will for Barack Obama to be president. And I quoted Romans 13, that God is the one who establishes authorities and nothing happens without his divine permission. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13 that all authorities are appointed by God. They're, in effect, ministers of God. That includes a person who's a police officer. That person is an authority, a person who's a mayor of a city, a person who is in control of a country, even by devious means. Now, sometimes we are given evil leaders because the people are doing evil. God actually says, if the people do evil, I'll give you evil leaders. If the people do righteous, I'll give you righteous leaders. When Barack Obama was president, I didn't vote for him, but I prayed for him because I realized he was placed there by God. In fact, God used him and used some of the things he did to bring us to the situation we're in now where Donald Trump comes on the scene to clean up some of the mess. And Donald Trump is God's man. It's his time in history. I believe all those that are in authority have been appointed by God. Even bad presidents that we've had, I believe, have been appointed by God. President Trump 
is in the right place at the right time, literally by divine appointment. It's like God looked down on America and said, I'm going to give you one more chance. I believe the Lord has appointed Trump to be our president in that he has stopped a cycle of policies that are anti-life, anti-faith, anti-Israel. Those things are, at this point, near the heart of God. Jesus rules over all governments, all galaxies. He has the final say on everything. The Bible tells us that God establishes kings and he removes kings. He puts those in power that he wants and he removes those from power that he doesn't want. No matter what someone would say, God has put President Trump in power. The question for us is to ask why and what should we do about that? What the reason is or the purpose is, I, I don't always know or understand. People sometimes ask me, why do you think God appointed President Trump as president? And I would say you have to ask God that. That is in the secret counsels of the Lord. I think it's one last reprieve that God is extending as an olive branch to the believers in America. If you just turn from your wicked ways and seek me, I'll bless your land. I do believe this very possibly could be God giving America a last chance before his return. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He sees the bigger picture that we can never see. God really is in charge of his world. The fierce opposition to President Trump is because President Trump stopped the enemy of America in their track. And I'm not talking only about the enemies of the outside. I'm talking about the enemies of America from within. The radical left who wants to transform the United States and change it and continue the vision of President Obama. You know, there's a tremendous opposition to President Trump for a number of reasons. Number one, he's trying to bring America back to its roots. The progressives say, no, we're getting way beyond that. The Judeo-Christian ethic is a thing of the past. Much of the opposition he faces is coming from those who are opposed to his values, and by the way, who are opposed to Christian values as well. And now here comes Donald Trump to set things back in order, to make America what it's supposed to be, to revisit our founding principles, Christianity, capitalism, the Constitution that really has meaning. President Trump has been so strong and vocal in his support of conservative values in this country. He is hated for it. Donald Trump says, no, no, no. We were great in the past by living the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Ten Commandments, the reason the country was founded, why the pilgrims came over, how this country is built and became a world superpower. And so the whole idea is he wants to bring that back again to America, which it can be brought back, which it has been brought back. If you saw in the 20th century the men in my family and the women marching. And when they demonstrated, there was one particular sign that's very famous. It says, I am a man. They got that out of, aren't we one blood? Aren't we the human race? Martin Luther King Jr. even went so far as to say, we must all learn to live together as brothers. And I added sisters or perish together as fools. It didn't say cousins, it didn't say another race, and all the races would get along. But we must all learn to live together as brothers and sisters. And I remember when President Trump was candidate Trump, he was elected to office. At his inaugural speech, he said, we all believe the same. 
I said, he understands Acts 17, 26. We're not colorblind, we can see. We see color, we celebrate color. And we're one blood, we all bleed the same. President Donald John Trump sees one race, and he also sees a great America. I have to believe, when we see this extreme hatred, that behind the scenes there is a spiritual warfare. The Bible says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, wickedness, and darkness. Not just, I don't like him, not just, you know, he's not my kind of politician, but raw hatred. I have never seen anything to compare with the general opposition to this president from the media and journalists. He's sort of triggered something. The reason that he is so disliked in Washington is because unlike previous presidents, Democrat and Republican, not just partisan, he's not a wholly owned subsidiary of the donors. He went there with his own money. Something has happened where this president has almost stuck his finger in the eye or he's put a stick in the hornet's nest in a way they feel that somebody has gotten in who isn't part of the club and who isn't willing to play whatever game needs to be played. He's hated because he is a disruptive force politically. He came in like a bull in the china shop. He's done exactly what he said he would do. Washington, D.C. is not broken. Washington, D.C. is a very well-oiled machine that needed to be broken, and Donald Trump is breaking it up. Something is going on beyond the veil. Something is deeper than mere politics. I believe it is a spiritual warfare, particularly because I believe the enemy was excited, angered over his support for Israel. I have to conclude there's been a satanic element involved in it because of his support for the Jewish people, because the devil hates God's chosen people. After the reign of King Saul, the tribes of Israel appointed David king to rule over Israel and Judah. It was in the year 1003 BC. King David captured Jerusalem and made it Israel's capital. We need to remember that at the time, this was a surprising move, for King David choosing Jerusalem was primarily political, economic, and strategic. No judge or king had established any capital before that time. Then, 30 years later, King Solomon built Israel's first temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. God said to Solomon concerning Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, I will put my name there forever. In 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed the first temple and carried the people of Judah into captivity. After 70 years of exile, the Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and the wall. The Romans destroyed the second temple in 70 AD, and Jews were scattered throughout the world. After World War I, control of the Middle East shifted to Great Britain and France. On November 2nd, 1917, British Foreign Minister Arthur Balfour wrote, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. This historic statement became known as the Balfour Declaration. In 1939, World War II brought 52 million deaths. Among these were six million Jews that Adolf Hitler shipped off to concentration camps. The collective guilt of the world's nations was compelling enough to grant the Jewish people a place to call home. On November 29, 
1947, the United Nations voted to partition the area into an Arab state and an Israeli state. After 2,000 years, the Jews once again had the promise of a homeland, but the Arabs immediately rejected the UN plan. Perpetual conflict began. Caught in the middle, Britain pulled out of Israel on May 14, 1948. And on that day, Israel declared its independence. The next day, five Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, launched a war against the newborn Jewish state. In 1949, a ceasefire was reached. During the 1967 Six-Day War, Israel took control of East Jerusalem, reuniting the city. In 1993, Israel issued the Jerusalem Covenant that stated that Jerusalem would never be surrendered or divided. On October 23, 1995, the U.S. Congress passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act. The law required the moving of the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem by May 31, 1999. The act called for Jerusalem to remain an undivided city and to be recognized as the capital of the State of Israel. If the U.S. President believed this would endanger national security, he could sign a waiver delaying the move for six months. For 22 years, Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama used the excuse of endangering national security, signing the waiver every six months. When God says the nations who bless Israel will be blessed and the nations who curse Israel will be cursed, we either believe that or we don't. Last time when I read the promise in Genesis that those that bless Israel would be blessed, I, I did not see an expiration date on I didn't see that that was for a limited time only. That promise is as real and as powerful today as it ever was. God essentially told Abraham, if they attack you, they attack me. I'm going to take it personally. It's like a father with a little kid. You're walking down the street. Somebody attacks your little kid. They attack you. God said, my covenant with you is so real, so binding, and it's an eternal covenant, and it's an unconditional covenant meaning no matter what man does, I'm still gonna perform this covenant. Donald Trump recognized a biblical truth. Israel is God's land. God gave it to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 1.8. And I said to him, Mr. President, you know there are two things that evangelicals find non-negotiable. One of them is the sanctity of life, and the other is Israel. And he kind of did a double take, he said, Israel. And I said, yes, sir, it's not just important, it's non-negotiable. I think it took him aback just a little bit, but I told him, I said, you have to understand that to those of us who are evangelicals, we're people of the book. We have been blessed as a nation because we have supported Israel and taken a strong stand for Israel. Our president, in particular, has uh, been very strong in this. I believe one reason God has blessed America is because of our steadfast support for Israel. There's a real challenge going on now in terms of the whole nation understanding the spiritual rewards, and I'm going to say economic rewards attached to supporting Israel. Look at the United States of America. We're the most blessed, by far the most blessed, in my opinion. We're the most blessed nation on the planet. 
and we're Israel's greatest ally in the earth today. Our history for the first uh, 70 years almost of Israel's history as a modern state was that of bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats. This is the first time in human history where the nation of Israel and the church has coexisted on earth, first time. So I believe that we are in the last days. I believe that you're gonna see increased anti-Semitic sentiment throughout the world. I believe the news is reporting that. We see tremendous anti-Semitism rising in Europe and of course in this country with Representative Omar and a few others. They clearly have a visceral hatred for, for the Jews and it's coming out and I think that if Americans can't stand against that at this point, we're in trouble. One of the strange things that we have seen lately in our country is a rise of anti-Semitism that comes mainly from the left. And I believe that our country is going to suffer God's judgment unless we turn from that anti-Semitism. President Obama concerned me when he legislated against and made moves against Israel because I felt that it really put our country in a dangerous place regarding God Almighty, who said, I'll curse those who curse Israel. President Obama was in the lame duck two months of his administration before the Trump administration took over. He still had the power. So he sent a signal to the nations of the world, go ahead and pass your resolution against Israel. On December the 23rd, 2016, there was a resolution put on the floor of the United Nations Security Council, and it stated that Israel's presence in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, was a flagrant violation of international law. All the U.S. had to do was raise its hand and vote no, because we have absolute veto power, but it didn't happen. Obama had ordered our ambassador to abstain. It was a stunning moment because it was the first time since the reformation of Israel in 1948 that any president, Democrat or Republican, had left Israel essentially just twisting in the wind. Disgraceful. Every move he made was anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. I think it was a betrayal. I think the Obama administration clearly betrayed our ally Israel. Most of the United Nations today is against Israel. Of all the resolutions they have passed against the different nations, over 50% of all resolutions are against one tiny nation of Israel. Uh, so the UN is horribly prejudiced against Israel. They have said Israel cannot have Jerusalem as its capital. They recognize every other capital of every other nation that they choose, every one except one. Donald Trump has made many achievements in the first couple years as President of the United States. By far his greatest one is moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel. By moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it sent a message to the whole world. An incredibly bold move. That's called leadership. It's like when Reagan said, Mr. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Tear down this wall. It's, it's almost a prophetic act. Our Congress passed an act called the Jerusalem Embassy Act that happened in 1995, and it said, the president is required to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Well, the presidents have made excuses from 1995 until 2017. For 20 years, our Congress, our presidents have talked about moving our embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing that as the capital of Israel. And 
They didn't do it. Donald Trump did it. We're grateful for that type of leadership, and I think it's very strategic. He made the decision against all odds and against unbelievable pressure. And he was getting it from the Europeans. He was getting it from everyone in the Middle East. He was getting it from every person in Congress and virtually everybody in the State Department. And he did it anyway. And I asked him, what, what caused you to finally just do it? And it was very simple. He said, number one, because I said I would, and number two, because it was the right thing to do. And I thought, how extraordinary. We have repaired America's friendship with our cherished ally, the State of Israel. We recognized the true capital of Israel and opened the American Embassy in Jerusalem. And we recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. We've seen through history God's hand upon those people. Only nation in the history of the world to go out of existence and then come back. Israelis want nothing but peace. Israelis want to have peace with their neighbors. Israelis honor God and their life. As a part of Judaism, they teach tikkun olam, repair the world, make the world a better place. Is America in the Bible? That's a common question for many who are interested in studying the prophetic events of the Bible. The majority of experts agree that America is not clearly, if at all, referenced in Scripture. However, there is an interpretation that, if believed, could place the United States playing a significant role in the end-time scenario. This is one interpretation that is speculation, and the truth of which will not be known for certain until that time it is revealed clearly from God. One of the great perplexing questions in Bible prophecy is, where is America? And the fact is, America is not overtly mentioned anywhere in the Bible regarding the end time. Is America uh, in some way uh, a, a lesser power in the last days? Kingdoms come and go. They rise and fall. This is the history of our planet. And the United States is just a blip on the radar screen. The scripture makes it clear that nations will give their allegiance to a political leader that will arise. We refer to him in Christianity as the Antichrist. But I personally believe that by the time that happens, that America will not be the America that we know today. I don't know about uh, the United States. I, I don't see it there. I do understand that there is uh, an enormous level of belief that um, the various kingdoms described in Daniel 7 relate to modern kingdoms today. That could be true. Um, honest answer is, I don't know one way or the other. This is one interpretation of prophecy. In Daniel chapter 7, there is reference to an eagle. Could the eagle represent the United States? We know the prophecy is written in symbols, but there are symbols that can be understood. Well, Throughout Bible prophecy, a beast always represents a nation or a kingdom. Daniel writes, Four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, 
and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Daniel then describes a bear with ribs in its mouth and a leopard which had four wings of a bird and a final terrible beast with iron teeth and ten horns. This last beast most understand to represent the final world global government. Later in Daniel 7, it says, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged. Daniel chapter 7 also tells us that those beasts symbolize nations that will be on the earth at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. If that is true, that means all these nations in this prophecy should be on the earth right now. This interpretation of prophecy sees the lion representing Great Britain, the bear, Russia, the leopard, Germany, and the ten-horned beast, the final global world government. I went to Great Britain, I stood in front of uh, Trafalgar Square, and there's a huge lion looking north, one looking south, one looking east, one looking west, because that is the official animal symbol of Great Britain. But the prophecy said the lion had eagle's wings. Well, there's a major nation on earth today that has the symbol of an eagle. And it also prophesies that the eagle's wings were broken off of the lion and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. The United States symbol is the eagle's right on the back of our dollar bill. And the eagle was growing out of the lion. Where did we come from? Our mother country, Great Britain. The Apostle John, who was given visions and wrote the book of Revelation, sees these individual beasts representing nations come together into one beast, representing the final global world government. Revelation 13 says, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. However, the eagle is missing from this combined beast. Well, that's one of the ways we know that the United States will not be involved in the world governing body. So all the powers, the nations, in the vision of Daniel, those nations now are going to merge into a one-world governmental system. And that's happening right now. We're moving toward global governance. There is one more reference to the eagle in Revelation 12. Symbolically, a woman, Israel, a male child, Christ, and the dragon, Satan. The verse describes the eagle protecting Israel. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. So we know that the United States will not be part of the world governing body in the end time, this new world order that we've been talking about, and that we will pull out of that and stand with Israel all the way to the end. Well, guess what's happening right now? The whole world is against Israel. They all told us we must not move our embassy to Jerusalem and we must not recognize Jerusalem as the capital. But Donald Trump did it anyway. And in so doing, he is actually fulfilling Revelation chapter number 12, verse number 14, aligning the United States against the world government and yet protecting Israel. And we're going to continue to do that all the way to the Battle of Armageddon. Is the eagle a reference to America? Or is it a reference to God himself? Only time and clarity from God can give us the answer. What is extremely clear is that 
If we the people do not continue to elect leaders that will preserve and maintain the sovereignty of the United States, then America is no more and will no longer be the home of the free. This isn't about winning an election. This is very simply, very, very simply about doing what's right for the country. The border wall is a Trump propaganda. Nancy, we'll find out. Nancy, we need border security. It's very simple. 100,000 people a week coming over. This is ridiculous. We have to stop illegal immigration, not just to protect our country, but to protect the immigrants who want to come in here. I respect what my parents and grandparents had to do to come and gain citizenship. The wall is ridiculous. And you also have the criminal gangs coming in. They don't walk through the points of entry. They come where nobody's around. I don't believe in open borders. I believe that our citizens have the right and responsibility to protect and secure our nation. I'm a border security guy. I want people coming here legally, not illegally. Any person supporting open borders, they're actually advocating for the continuation and the growth of human trafficking and sex trafficking. We have terrorists. We caught 10 terrorists over the last very short period of time. 10. The head of the SWAT team told me they are monitoring 2,500 active Hezbollah members operating in the state of Texas alone. So we know that the drug cartels are working with Hezbollah. We know that the MS-13 gang members now are working with Hezbollah. No, we don't need a wall from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. That's not going to solve anything. We will get it done. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. It is no accident that the border wall has become the focal point of the Trump administration. President Donald Trump understands if we don't defend our borders, we have no national sovereignty. According to the Department of Homeland Security, half a million people enter into the United States illegally each year. Today, it is estimated over 12 million illegal immigrants live in the U.S. That is roughly 3.7% of the U.S. population. What is the real reason behind the border wall being such a contentious issue? The Democrat agenda of open borders is morally reprehensible. The president says if you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. You know, we're being told today that a wall is immoral. I don't know how people can say that with a straight face. As a former military member, I have fought in combat. I've been to Iraq, I've been to Afghanistan. I've witnessed chaos and anarchy, bloodshed, death, destruction, you name it. Knowing what I have seen and knowing the threats against America, we have to have strong national security. We have to protect our land. We have to protect the people of this nation. I believe that 9-11 taught us that lesson the hard way, and that's something I never want to see happen again. It's truly sad, though, as to how many Americans have already forgotten that day. It really is sad. We have a problem. It's at our southern border. Drug cartels, human trafficking, gang members, murders, and all sorts of other criminals are coming here and wreaking havoc in our nation. Socialism, you put up a wall to keep people in. But when you have capitalism in a free country that is enviable and the envy of the nations, you have to put up a wall to keep people out until they can come in legal. Those of us who are legal immigrants to the United States understand the exceptionalism of the United States because we escape tyranny. We know what it's like to live under a place where people can knock on your door in the middle of the night and take you where you will never be heard of again. There is nothing immoral about a border wall. 
I mean, the fact is, if walls are immoral, then God is immoral. Revelation 21 says there's going to be a wall around heaven. The purpose of a wall is not to keep good people from getting out, but from evil people getting in. It is God who has put people within the boundaries of their nations and has established their borders. God says that he's made nations and he's made borders. So the God of the Bible has established nations for a great purpose. It's the greatest betrayal of the American middle class and frankly, American life. Our country has as a whole, nobody's seen anything like it. People are pouring in, but we've stopped them. I'm not opposed to immigration. We need immigration, we know that. But we, we need to know who's coming into this country. When I came to the United States, I paid for my own airline ticket. I paid for my visa to get my visa. I paid for all my medical bills. I had to go and take blood tests. I had to be stuck in needles to make sure I'm not bringing any diseases to the country. And I did it gladly because that was a part of the price I had to pay to earn the privilege of being an American citizen or becoming an American citizen. And then I had to study a two-inch thick book written by the daughters of the American Revolution about America's history. By the time I became an American citizen, I knew more about America's history and heritage than my American-born husband did. I've been to a ceremony where people who went through the right channels were sworn in as Americans, and it was, it brought tears to my eyes. It was beautiful. They were proud to have assimilated, they were proud to be a part of America. They wept, they cried, it was beautiful. You work for something so hard. You appreciate it, you value it, you treasure it. It's your prized possession. For those of us who did it by the book to come here, we work so hard, even harder, to show people that we were worthy of you accepting us into your culture. So for those who say, oh, you know, you're a racist, you're anti-immigrant. I'm a brown-skinned woman, from the Middle East, my mother tongue is Arabic. I came to this country. I did it the legal way, the right way. Those are the type of immigrants we want to bring into the country. People who can become a part of the American fabric. as a young boy growing up, in the southern part of the United States, you could not find a Republican because Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. The entire South was Democrat all the way up until 1964. And then it began to slowly shift. But I remember as a young boy, discussion, of course, in the schoolyard, you know, kids are just repeating what they hear their parents say. We've got to support abortion because there's too many Negro children being born. And if we don't support abortion, then they will take over one day. And so this is the conversation. So I believe abortion is racist. I admire Margaret Sanger enormously. I am really in awe of her. And when I think about what she did all those years ago in Brooklyn, I am really in awe of her. And there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from her life. 
According to the Washington Times in 2017, Planned Parenthood was founded on racism. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, is quoted as writing, we do not want word to go out. We want to exterminate the Negro population. We hear the cries of those who say black lives matter, yet abortion is the number one killer of black lives in the US. And Planned Parenthood is the greatest perpetrator. The Roe v. Wade landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973 ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. 68 million babies have been aborted in the U.S. since that godless decision. Let's put that into perspective. Between 1941 and 1945, the World War II genocide, six million European Jews were murdered. During the Vietnam War conflicts, 1955 to 75, there were recorded 1.2 million deaths. Not to mention the history of deaths from worldwide pandemics. That's a whole generation of Americans gone. Doctors, lawyers, scientists, teachers, policemen, firemen, even a politician or president. watching the debates with President Trump when he debated Mrs. Hillary Clinton. When the question of abortion came up and President Trump looked at her and he said, ripping little babies apart. Out of the womb of the mother, just prior to the birth of the baby. Now, you can say that that's okay, and Hillary can say that that's okay, but it's not okay with me. She was speechless before she could regroup and begin to attempt to answer about a woman's rights of what to do with her body. But the president painted so vividly what happens to an innocent child that it was very clear that whatever his position on abortion had been previously, he is fully for the sanctity of life. The president is extremely pro-life. I mean, that is not a political thing to him. That's a very personal thing to him. I've watched some things. I'll just say it here. I remember we were dealing with a situation with life and fantasize. Because we're not just fighting right now for the, the unborn. We're actually fighting for the born. We're fighting to say, when a child comes out, due to its sex, due to its, due to you, due to whatever, you know, do, do you save this child? There is a big difference between grace and mercy. Grace, getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do. And when you think about the state of affairs in America, 68 million babies dead through abortion in 45 years, homosexual marriage where we have now challenges with adoption and foster children who are being just destroyed. I don't think you can celebrate the murder of 1.4 million children every year through abortion and expect God's blessing on our nation. For a child to be aborted, God just looks at that like that's an abomination. That's the bottom rung of the ladder. You can't go lower than that. There is no lower than that. If that's the way you view life, you're done as a country. And if we don't stop the killing of the innocent, God only knows what judgments he will bring. How can we judge anybody for any sin or wrong or crime when we legally will kill a baby? Abortion is a crime against humanity. These are people that God wants brought to bear. This is wrong in the sight of God and it just in the sight of pure humanity. 
if we have President Democrat, will we see what they want? Infanticide. They want womb to tomb control over people's lives. They want euthanasia. This is where the left has taken this country. Today, in the Trump uh, administration, is a very high level, sophisticated, spiritual kind of battle. I think being pro-life, which is an agenda that has a biblical root, has drawn out a lot of enemies. What you can't argue is the fact that the president's commitment to defending life in the womb and out of the womb, but his pro-life stance resonated with the Hispanic American community on steroids. 30% of Hispanics voted for President Trump, in spite of everything the media said, in spite of even some of the tweets. In spite of that, they supported President Trump because life trumps, no pun intended, absolutely everything. I think that women should have the right to choose what they want to do with their own bodies. It just seems like a very archaic um, way of handling women's health. People say, oh, well, that's murder. Well, it's really not. It's just a heartbeat and a lump of tissue. The New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, essentially inviting infanticide into America to be mainstream. Governor Northam of Virginia endorsing that same concept. I mean, it's, it's absolutely insanity to see when Cuomo signed that with the sneer and the, the wickedness that was behind the faces. So I want to take it a step further. And I want to pass this year a constitutional amendment that writes into the Constitution. Those who believe that a woman is doing what she wants with her own body and having an abortion, that is a different lexicon of language. It's not her body, it's in her body. If I were an atheist, I would have that position. It has nothing to do with God, nothing. It's either in her body or her body. If it's her body, then it's the equivalent of a pimple. Can a woman remove a pimple? Yes, no one has an issue with women removing pimples. We have just passed bills where when the baby is born, the mother can decide whether or not that baby lives. If it survived the abortion, they stand there while that baby gasps, cries, dies. I remember I was in a very private dinner at the White House, and it was the president, a few senators, a few faith leaders, and that had pretty much just happened. And the president kind of went behind the senator and went, so, you can just kill a child for any reason. I tell millennials, young adults, when I speak to them all the time, I said, you are a generation. You are the generation that can end this Holocaust of abortion. You are the generation that God, I believe, is raising up to end this terrible thing that we know is abortion. It is my profound honor to be the first president in history to attend the March for Life. He's now appointed two Supreme Court justices, and there's a pretty good chance that he may appoint the third. President Trump puts Kavanaugh forward. It goes through this battle of his appointment. What was the battle for? What was the vehement rejection of who Kavanaugh was by the opposition, we'll call them, that he was pro-life? I want to tell you, Gorsuch, 
I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Profoundly pro-life. So you might ask, well, how does that dovetail into the Bible? Perfectly. The Bible tells us that regarding righteousness, we are commanded as believers to speak up for those who are destined to death, to those who have no voice, to those who are going to be crushed, the scripture says. That Old Testament prophet just described to us an abortion. Kavanaugh's appointment via Donald Trump has resulted in the savings of thousands and thousands of babies' lives. Answer, God is honored. I believe we are at the threshold of seeing Roe v. Wade essentially overturned in this issue, going back to the states and the vast majority of states embracing the sanctity of human life. I know for a fact that if President Trump is reelected, we will see Roe v. Wade overturned. Every child is a precious and sacred gift from God. Together, we must protect, cherish, and defend the dignity and the sanctity of every human life. How many lives have been saved because of President Trump? Every life brings love into this world. Every child brings joy to a family. Every person is worth protecting. And above all, we know that every human soul is divine and every human life, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of Almighty God. And I say with true passion, thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you all. Thank you. Character is defined in the dictionary as the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. The six pillars of character are trustworthiness, respect, responsibility, fairness, caring, and citizenship. Trump is about Trump, that's it. He cares about himself. I think he's frightening. Well, I like his integrity, I like his forthrightness, I like the fact that he gets things done. He's like only uh, doing his uh, job for uh, making more money for himself. I, I know a lot of people who love him and I will never be able to understand it. Character can be animated in the life and blood of a human with personality, emotion, meaning, conviction, passion, and purpose. I think he's a buffoon. He is unconventional. He may have some good business ideas, but it's lost in all the rhetoric and the nasty talk. And I got a good tax break this year, so maybe that's good. He incites fear instead of bringing people together. And somehow he became president. Character is a full-size painting of one's life. We don't expect any of our politicians to keep their promises. Why? Because they don't. President Trump is a force of nature. That's one way that I would describe him. Promises made and promises kept about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he puts his money and his heart where his mouth is. President, when he ran in 2016, uh, he said he's going to put America first. And he's doing that in the business aspect. He's doing that in the security aspect. And he's just carrying out a campaign pledge that he made to the American people. To be a man who keeps his promises, that's a character issue. 
people who want to question, for example, the character of the president, his right to be president, uh, I say keeping promises is a character issue. And on that, he flies high. I've never seen him throw a punch now where he starts the fight. But on the other hand, he's also the guy that wakes up every day swinging. And he's just, he's fearless, he's courageous. President Trump, unlike other politicians, doesn't know what he can't do. Uh, he knows what he wants to do and he does it. And I've seen so many, what I would call strong, even Christian leaders who have folded in the face of opposition and this president hasn't. When I joined the Marine Corps, I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I swore that I would bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and I did it all within the context of the last line of that oath. So help me God. Back in 2017, I watched my president put his hand on a Bible and swear his allegiance to America. We made the same vow to preserve, to protect, to defend the Constitution, to protect her sovereignty, to protect what our founding fathers fought for, what they bled for, what they died for, for life, for liberty and freedom. Our president shows tremendous leadership. He's courageous. He's staring evil dead in the face. He's standing firm. He's not backing down to those who hate him and the values that he stands for. He fights for the unborn. He fights for Israel. He fights for our national security, our economic well-being. He has done exactly what he said he would do. And I'm, I'm proud to serve under his leadership as our commander in chief. When the founders talked about we want our leaders to be men of character, the main issue is always would they put themselves and their own interests in a corrupt way before the people they represent or would they put the interests of the people they represent who elected them before their own interests? When my father passed away, we went up to Washington. His body was uh, held in honor at the Capitol. And then he had our family over to the White House for dinner. He said, now, Franklin, he said, I'm going to come to Charlotte to his funeral. I'll be there. Well, the day of his funeral, there was a windstorm on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. was the first time in the history of our nation that the nation's capital was closed due to a storm. Trees were falling down. Power was being knocked out. And so the uh, Air Force said, we can't fly today. Uh, the plane is not positioned right at Andrews. He said, well, then move the plane. And they took it to Dulles, and he went to Dulles to catch the airplane instead of Andrews. And he said, I told Franklin and the family I was going to be there, and we're going to be there. I mean, look what he did with this missionary named Andrew Brunson, who is in a jail in Turkey. Any other president would have let that poor man rot in jail and let a couple of junior-level State Department employees do what they could. But he made an international vent out of it, put sanctions that made their stock market plummet. And they said, oh, you can have this missionary if you'll quit doing this. His children are some of the most respectful, kindest, caring, loving people that you'll ever know. I mean, I could start and talk about Eric and what he's done for St. Jude's. Ivanka, how brilliant she is. 
Jared and Ivanka not needing to go to the government. I mean, th these are people who are very successful. Ivanka went and worked for her father till she came out of school and worked for herself and was successful. And for an environment to grow up and have that kind of wealth and that kind of um, society, we don't see so many children turn out quite that responsible and with that kind of integrity. And that speaks volumes. I mean, absolute volumes as to what kind of man he is as a father. I'm gonna use this term and people will laugh when I say it, but he was humble. He, he is humble, he listens, he is a good listener, he asks questions, and he's very considerate. Now, that's not what a lot of people see through the lenses of the media. In August of 2016, in Louisiana, there these massive floods. It was right after the Republican convention. I was a delegate to the convention, spoke at the convention. He wanted to go f to ride in the areas where that had been flooded. And so we got in the car and we're driving through these neighborhoods. Literally every house flooded, people pulling out soaked and soggy belongings they had, pulling them out to the curb to be put in the trash. And the president repeatedly said, stop, 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 I, I want to get out. And he would go up and he, and he would talk to the family there. He didn't have to do that, but he'd go up and the people are, I mean, it's hot, sweaty, it's August in South Louisiana. And, and it was as if he, he was really empathizing with the people. And then he, he committed $100,000 right there on the spot for the relief effort that was going through our church. And I've seen that same side of him repeatedly, that he, he cares. And I think that's why so many average Americans connect with him. He is as cool as a cucumber and every time that I leave him, I always think this is the kind of person you want running your country, somebody who is steady and calm under intense pressure. He was chosen for such a time as this. I'm probably one of the most, I'm right up there, the most outspoken, God gave us and it hasn't hurt my business one bit. Every day they say, Mike, are you getting hurt by this? And I said, no, every day, my busiest day is what we're in right now. You know, you can't live in fear. Business owners can't live in fear. People can't live in fear. We've got our leader and the only leader that can get this done. With our great president, vice president, and this administration, administration and all the great people in this country praying daily. He prays about almost everything. You know, he's the most praying president we've ever had. I don't know if people know that. He works 21 hours out of a 24-hour day and he works for you. He's a winner. He believes in winning. Now, I don't know how many times you ever listened to the previous commander-in-chief talk about ISIS or uh, Afghanistan, but you never heard him use the term win. Donald Trump's a winner. He believes in winning. So ask yourself, how did he, in such a short period of time, decimate ISIS in Iraq and Syria? How did he decimate them and take back all the territory, all, about 92% of the territory that they controlled when he became the commander-in-chief? How did he do that? He relied on the commanders, not the politicians. He relied on the commanders. So tell me what you need to win. What do you need in materiel? And what do you need in rules of engagement? They gave it to him and he, he gave them the right rules of engagement and he gave them the materiel that they said they needed and now look what's happened. We are going to keep on working. We are going to keep on fighting and we are going to keep on winning, winning, winning. Is Donald Trump qualified be the commander-in-chief, uh, I would say uh, that is a resounding yes. 
It's been said, birds of a feather flock together. Haters will be haters, and tweeters will be ridiculed, mocked, lied about, hacked, attacked, and banned. If we live our life by tweets, news headlines, Facebook, then everyone is corrupt, greedy, whoremongers, racists, homophobics, xenophobics, all the phobics. When did we become people of society that don't have an original thought or moral compass? There is truth way down deep inside of our soul. We must close out the noise, seek humility, offer forgiveness, and look at what God says about flawed people. Why does God use flawed people? Because that's all he's got. <laughs> is President Trump flawed? Uh, yes. Am I flawed? Mm, yes. Are you flawed? Mm, yeah. <laughs> so all God has at his disposal are flawed men and women. Well, first of all, we're all flawed. Uh, we're all sinners, every last one of us. And, and God uses flawed people. Just look at the scriptures. Look at King David. He was a great leader of Israel. The people loved him. He brought Israel through many hardships. He was famous, but he wasn't perfect. He made a few bad decisions that had serious ramification. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And this was God's chosen leader. So I guess the question ought to be asked, can God use flawed leaders? Because if God cannot use flawed leaders, then who's he going to use? It's about the perfect God who is capable of working through imperfect instruments to bring about his perfect purpose. Sometimes he can use flawed leaders better and more powerfully than he can use leaders who are more morally upright because sometimes uh, a sense of humility or brokenness uh, can come with that. It's the perfect pristine leaders that on occasion, on many occasions, more often than not, are full of themselves. But when you're flawed, your dependency is on the grace-filled work of God. I'm a Christian pastor, and I'm a human, and I understand that no one's perfect. That's why I have a Savior. That's why I have Jesus Christ. Now, to be fair, President Trump has created a lot of his own problems, uh, speaking so bluntly, sometimes speaking with a great sense of hyperbole and exaggeration. Let's be fair. You know, he, he sometimes will say something in a tweet or in a speech, and even I, who love the guy and voted for him and helped him, I go, oh my, my, what, this is going to be a problem today. I understand where a person may be offended at some of his comments. I understand that. But again, he's not my pastor. And that's not what he ran as to be the pastor of this nation. Uh, he's the president. So he cusses when he gets mad. Uh, he says things that are brutally honest. And that, that's very offensive to some people. But you have to look past that and look at what he's done for this country so far. If you don't like, oh, he said something wrong, it hurt somebody's feelings, I'm so sorry. You know, whoop de doo you look what he's getting done. Uh, when we elect a president of the United States, uh, the president is a secular leader. We don't elect a pastor to lead the country. We don't elect a bishop or a Sunday school teacher. If you go get a doctor, you want the best doctor. You don't necessarily check off whether 
they are a Christian doctor. And although President Trump will be the first to say that he is an imperfect vessel, I believe God has used him in a very powerful way to help return our nation to some of the core biblical principles that has caused God's blessings upon our country. So many people will hold an elected official to a standard that is almost Christ-like, right? Almost Messiahship-like. And we need to pull back from that. A lot of people want to be thinking, well, I'm not going to vote because this or that. Listen, Jesus Christ is not on the ballot. He never will be. The Messiah will not arrive on Air Force One. It's not going to happen. So the people that are judging President Trump, number one, don't know him. I personally know that. They don't know him. They've never sat down with him. They don't know what's truth. They don't know what's not truth. I personally know the remorse that he has. I personally know that maybe even I would say shame, regrets. We have to understand that something that you did 10 years ago is different than something you would do today. JFK did horrible things, brought prostitutes routinely into the White House while he was president. We haven't taken him off the 50 cent piece yet. So many times I have other Christians challenge me and say, how could God use an ungodly person like Donald Trump. And I say, well, he's using you, isn't he? Voting is a tremendous responsibility. We recognize that those rights were given and had to be fought for, for the black community, for women. It is so important for citizens to understand their power and the power of their vote. It's not enough to be informed. It's not enough to pray. Prayer needs to be coupled with action in order to make a difference. Our form of government is such that it's not for spectators. If we want to preserve our republic, which our founders created, we have to be participants. We've got to be engaged in it. If you just stop and look at the Mayflower Compact, it's so short. It says that we've left Europe to come to this continent to establish a Christian nation. Who hears this anymore? Who reads this in school? You know, it was John Jay, the first Chief Justice of our United States Supreme Court, who said, God has given us the privilege in this nation to choose our leaders. And it is our duty and responsibility to prefer and select Christians as our leaders. God will ask you why you allowed the most God-centered, free country founded by people who believed in God and God we trust is its motto and you didn't vote to sustain it? What is your excuse? It is still we the people and that's a very important thing. Will we blow it? Will we fumble this ball close to the end zone? Or will we rise to that lofty calling that God has placed upon every citizen in the United States to let our voice be heard in how we elect and who we elect. Because America determines the direction of the world in many cases. So until that time of globalism, we need to stand strong and recognize God is making America great again like he did in its early founding years. How much time do we have? It's up to us.
if you stay home and you do not vote, you may elect by default someone who does not share your values. Sooner or later, a secularist is going to win. When that day comes, I think for us Christians, they're going to, to come after us. The Democrat Party is becoming a godless party by their effort to remove God from their party platform, to erase, so help me God, from the oath of office. Their support for the barbaric practice of late-term abortion. If you are a Christian and you say, I don't believe in same-sex marriage, I'm a minister, I don't want to marry same-sex couples, that violates my religion. We're on the verge of the government saying, you better do it. If you don't do it, we're coming after you, you'll lose your business. Our children are taught in the schools that they're being taught not only now that same-sex marriage is equal to natural biblical marriage, but now they're teaching, being taught that they can choose their genders. It's absolute lunacy uh, and depravity that has been unleashed on our society, and the door was opened by Barack Obama. When President Obama lit up the White House in rainbow colors, that was a classic example of misunderstanding this issue of religious liberty. For the government to get behind a particular view of human sexuality or of the human person, those are religious issues. One of the darkest days, I think, for the country was the day the Supreme Court did something they had no authority to do and that is preempt the issue of marriage from the states. What you basically had was five unelected, robed judges appointed with no accountability for the consequences of their action, who usurped the rights of 50 states, 34 of whom had already voted to affirm traditional biblical marriage between one man and one woman. The problem I have, a lot of people say, well, you're, you're homophobic or you're anti-gay. No, it's not about that. It's whether or not we are a nation of law or whether or not we're a nation of emotions and political pressure. The election is about the Supreme Court. And who do you trust to appoint someone to the bench? I would live for the day when liberals would not want to see the Supreme Court legislate from the bench. Because if they can legislate for the left, they need to remember someday that court can legislate for the right. I think as Christians, we need to be willing to serve. That means we need to be willing to put ourselves out there to become candidates for office. For Christians who say, well, I don't want to get involved in politics. It's really dirty. Yeah, it really is. But so are the dishes in your sink. I think that women should vote their values, not whether they like someone or not. For Christians, we're supposed to look beyond their fault, see the need. If you're a Christian, can you be grateful for the fact that we have protected lives in and out of the womb. Can you be grateful for the fact that religious liberty stands protected so we can preach the gospel of Jesus? President Trump, by fortifying religious liberty, by having the audacity of saying Merry Christmas, by having rose garden ceremonies where unashamedly people come in and actually give a testimony on how they were transformed by the redemptive grace-filled work of Christ in the White House on a national press conference? Who does that? My plea with Roman Catholics, fellow Catholics, don't betray Jesus with your vote. Jesus said, what you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. Would you vote for Herod, who was trying to kill Jesus? Would you vote for Pilate, who condemned an innocent man? If you wouldn't, then why would you vote for a proponent of the slaughter of innocent babies.
It's a betrayal of our faith, and it's a betrayal of Jesus himself. This nation is on a tipping point. There are 65 million self-identified evangelicals. Those are people, according to the, to the script, believe the Bible is the Word of God, have had a personal relationship with Christ, and attend church an average of once a month. Half of them are not registered to vote. And half of those that are registered to vote don't vote. If those people ever showed up, we'd take this country back in a minute. He wants to make America strong again. He wants America safe again. He wants America healthy again. He wants America wealthy again. He wants America proud again. He wants America great again. And I think that he's on to something. If we win in 2020, then a new generation can see what prosperity is all about. Every time we go into a voting booth, we are casting a vote for righteousness or for unrighteousness. I want to be faithful and do what God called me to do and entrusted to me the highest privilege on this planet and that is the right to choose the leadership for the United States of America. I'm going to show up. I'm going to take everybody that I can show up. I'll make sure that I'm registered and that I vote. And anyone who doesn't do that will have to give account. And we will live by the words of our national motto, in God we trust. is at stake for we, the people, that is, you and me. There are decisions here on earth we can't make. We live in the greatest country that has ever existed, a land of the free, home of the brave, a nation that offers us equality in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a nation that prohibits any law limiting freedom with respect to religion, expression, and peaceful assembly. If we don't elect people who are willing to fight for our freedoms, sovereignty, if we don't fight for the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, then we may cease to experience what has made our country America. We must protect our rights. These decisions are up to us. We, the people. There is also a decision facing you, one of great concern and consequence. Ask yourself these questions. What is the value of your soul? Is there a God? Where will you spend eternity? Where there is life, there is liberty. Where there is salvation, there is eternal freedom. You know, there's a reason most of us won't go to heaven. But the reason is not what you think. It's not because you got to be perfect to go to heaven, because actually you can't be perfect. It's that most of us will never give up our pride about being imperfect and acknowledge that we are something we don't like to claim, that we're sinners. God loves you and has a plan for your life, and that plan includes salvation. To be saved, what does it mean to be saved? It means that all your sins are forgiven. Heaven is not a place of good people. Good people are going to miss heaven altogether. And a lot of bad people will end up in heaven. Here's why. Because to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. And if you're thinking, but I can't be, and I'm not, that's why Jesus Christ came to earth. Jesus Christ is perfect. He lived his life just like you and I do as a human being. 
but he lived it without sin. This is the salvation that God has given us. It's by faith in Jesus alone. He went to that cross for you and I. He died on that cross for our sins. God required payment in his justice. The only people who go into heaven are those who are stamped forgiven. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. Jesus said, I'm the way. He said, I'm the truth. He said, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He was put on a cross. He died on that cross, taking all of our sins with him. And then three days after his death, he came out of the grave to once and for all say, not only is death destroyed, but so is sin. If you're willing to repent and turn from your sins and by faith believe on the name of Jesus Christ, God will forgive your sins and he'll heal your heart. And when you do that, he will transform your life. You don't transform your life. You don't have to transform your life. He will transform you. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So just invite Christ to come into your life right now. And I promise you, according to God's word, he will. Just simply pray this prayer with me. Just say, dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, forgive me. I believe Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me on the cross. He was buried for my sins, that you raised him to life. And I want to invite him to come into my heart to take control from this moment forward. Amen. The Bible says if you prayed that prayer to God and you really meant it with all of your heart, you've been forgiven of your sins. You have the assurance of heaven one day. And all that part about being perfect, don't worry. He'll take care of that when he gets you there.